podcast we have conversations with people who've been fucked up by their faith and we explore how they found hope, healing, reconciliation and forgiveness in or out of their faith tradition. Hello and welcome to Fucked Up by Faith. It's Jude. I don't have a guest today so I'm going to do something a little bit unusual, well unusual at least for this podcast which is do a solo run and talk to you a little bit about the Fucked Up by Faith project and about I suppose a little bit about my creative process uh, um, hoping it might be of interest to at least some of you out there. I don't pretend that this podcast has got a massive audience. I would like to improve that a little bit but really for those of you who do follow the podcast, you will know that it is a personal creative project with a purpose. It has always been my intention to for this project to inform my master's dissertation. And the focus of that is really about the process itself. Not just the process of creating the podcast, but the process that my guests go through in telling their stories, in engaging with their own narrative around the subject of spiritual abuse. So whilst a lot of my interviewees wouldn't probably identify with the idea of spiritual abuse uh, it's definitely there in a lot of the stories that we have covered. And my hope is to really get into and examine that process of telling the story. And specifically, the process and impact of telling the story to a public audience, as small as it might be, with the, the reach of this podcast. So that's my area of interest. It might feel a bit niche but I feel that it's very very relevant. The topic of spiritual abuse is coming more to the fore. I think very Im important. So this uh, this episode is partly uh, an invitation. If you have engaged with this podcast with the subjects that we cover which as you probably know are quite wide-ranging then I'd love to talk to you uh, please don't think that you are not interesting or important enough to take part in a podcast. I believe that every single person has a story to tell, that every story is interesting and that it is important to tell that story and that in telling a story has an important healing purpose and I use healing in the broadest sense of the word. Um, it might be called therapeutic in other contexts, although I don't for a second believe that I am engaging in therapy with people because it's, first of all, it's a, it's not a confidential space. Other people are able to hear, um, but it is essentially therapeutic and very healing from the feedback that I've had from the people that I have interviewed. They feel it to be so. So the invitation is there. If you feel you 
would like to tell me your story. I would love to listen to it, to record it, and to broadcast it. Uh, I do operate a very ethical, I believe, ethical process in that. Anything that you say that you don't want to be recorded or broadcast will be taken out. If you feel that after we have recorded the episode, you would rather it wasn't broadcast, then it won't be. And if in the future you decide that there are elements of the podcast that you would like removed, or indeed the whole podcast removed from the public sphere, then I will honour that. So there are definite ethical principles in creating and broadcasting the podcast, but also when it comes to doing my research, which is around the impact of recording and telling your story, then those th- that process will comply with the university's research ethics policy, which is quite robust. Um, as an academic researcher, I am bound by that, that code of ethics. So hopefully that makes you feel a bit more comfortable if you've got reservations about it. But I'd love to hear from you if you have a story about being fucked up by faith and if you've listened to any of the, the episodes so far, you'll know that that's pretty broad in its reach. Then please drop me a line and we'll set a date to record. I'd love to hear from you. So what I'd lo- like to talk about now is some musings that I had about the creative process So one of the things that you might not know about me is that I have the privilege of occasional preaching in the church that I belong to and this is a privilege based on the the fact that I am licensed as a chaplain to the diocese that I'm in. And it is a privilege and it's also a gift. It's a gift that I discovered that I had when I did um, preaching training with uh, another diocese and it wasn't a gift that I was expecting to discover and certainly if you told me 10 or certainly 20 years ago that I would find myself standing up in front of congregations and speaking to the word of God, I would have laughed in your face. But here we are, things change, people change, people evolve, I certainly have, and I do see it as a privilege. One of the the, the gifts that I have only very recently begun to deeply honour in myself is that I am an agitator. I like to poke people's buttons and not not in a negative way, not in a way which is about uh, unsettling people unnecessarily. It's about unsettling people when they need to be unsettled, to challenge those parts of them that are not thinking about the important things, perhaps. Um, and preaching is offers an opportunity 
for people to have the right buttons pushed. So that tends to be how I often approach uh, this opportunity is thinking about, okay, what is the, the radical message that is being offered here? Usually in the gospel reading, so you might know if you're a churchgoer that the, the readings in the Church of England follow the lectionary. So that means that there are set readings for each Sunday and they'll include uh, an Old Testament reading usually and a New Testament reading, a psalm and a gospel reading. And whoever is preaching is usually expected to preach on those readings and more often than not on the gospel. And if you know anything about uh, Jesus, you'll know that he was also an agitator who liked to pu push, push people's buttons. And so I often, when I'm approaching the words of Jesus in the gospels, that's what I feel compelled to do is to say, okay, how is Jesus pushing our buttons? So I'd like to offer uh, you an example here of uh, a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago, um, which was exactly about that, but in a very gentle way. But it, And it also examines um, the creative process. So the reading that inspired this particular sermon is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 32 to 40. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet, so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Today's lectionary readings offer us several potential subjects, all of which have a degree of theological bite to them. Those of you who have heard me preach before will know that I am not shy of tackling the difficult topics. It is the case today of which particular difficult things should I focus on. As I often do when I'm staring at a blank screen for too long, I decided to do some ruminating. This is something I have learned to do when I have something creative on my mind. For the past couple of years, I've been studying for a master's degree in public theology. And every time I meet an impasse in an essay, 
I have learned to close the laptop top to go off and do something else. Sleeping on it has become one of my go-to methods and often I will wake up and I'll know where I'm going to go next with what I have to write. So for me this is a lot about learning to trust the process. As a person of faith I wholeheartedly believe that there is a power at work that does the work for me when I make enough space for the inspiration to come through. An atheist might tell me that I am simply giving my brain a rest, giving my cognitive processes time to recalibrate, that the creativity is all mine, and that may well be true. Either way, it still comes down to trust. And a big part of that trust is about letting go of fear. He might even say that the opposite of trust is fear. Our Gospel reading begins with this exhortation from Jesus. Do not be afraid. And it's a phrase that is repeated fairly often in the Bible. In fact, someone suggested that do not be afraid or fear not appears 365 times in the Bible. This isn't really true, by the way. They were just using it as a device to sell a book with a fear not lesson for every day of the year. It's a nice gimmick, but it doesn't really appear 365 times. Even so, it does appear often enough to be a thing and it's certainly something that Jesus says a lot. Do not be afraid. Easier said than done, you might say. Telling someone not to do the thing that is consuming them often has the opposite effect. I know from my own experience that if I start a conversation with my mother with the words don't worry, she immediately panics about what incredibly worrying thing I am about to tell her. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this particular scenario. What if I say to you, don't think of an elephant? I can pretty much guarantee that your head is now full of an elephant. Indeed, the elephant will probably be there long after you've forgotten the rest of this sermon. Do not be afraid is both an instruction and a question because it immediately begs the question, what is there to be frightened of? Or as Jesus asks elsewhere in the Gospels, why are you so afraid? Why are we so afraid? You might say that there is a lot happening at the moment to be frightened of, and you would be right. The climate crisis and the rising cost of living, to name just two. Fear is a normal human reaction to a threat. Being in a state of fear puts us into fight or flight mode and revs up our nervous system. But we know that feeling that way for a long period of time is not good for us. 
it can have a detrimental effect on our physical as well as our mental and emotional well-being. People who live with the constant threats of poverty suffer more from poor health and live shorter lives than their wealthier neighbours. So whilst money can't buy you happiness, it can certainly improve many aspects of lives that lead to happier lives. Fear is simply not the way we are supposed to feel all the time. Preaching on the idea of fear as the opposite of trust is really tricky because there are Christians out there that would suggest that the ills of poverty and ill health come about by simply not having enough faith. Those of you familiar with the prosperity gospel will know what I am talking about. Simply put, and in the most polite fashion I can muster, they are wrong. That is, I believe, a toxic perversion of Jesus' words. When Jesus says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, he doesn't mean that faith alone will then continue to provide what we need. It certainly won't bring us riches. Firstly, there's an acknowledgement that the poor need help and it is our duty to help them. But secondly, it is about Jesus challenging where we put our faith and where we put our trust. He's challenging the love of money and possessions. In the corresponding verses in Matthew's Gospel, that's where he tells us that you cannot serve both God and money, or God and mammon if you prefer the authorised version. I think we can be pretty sure that this passage is about love. Partly because, well, it's Jesus and everything is about love. But also, in this gospel, he gives us a really big clue. He says, Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is this treasure that cannot be destroyed? For where your treasure is, your heart is. It's about love. The kingdom, God's kingdom, is love. Whilst we might say that fear is the opposite of trust, it's also often said that fear is the opposite of love. Love is the field in which God abides, for God is love. The early Christians worked really hard to live out this kingdom message. They did indeed sell all their possessions. They lived in community where everyone's needs were looked after. And they loved. The love sustained them. It infused every aspect of their lives. This is what we are called to do, even as 21st century Christians. Whilst you might choose not to sell all your possessions, you might nonetheless choose to give a proportion of what you have to those who need it more. 
This is just one way to cultivate the fearlessness of love. And to me, this is the incredibly radical nature of Christianity and of Jesus' teaching that brought me to the faith in the first place. I say cultivate because I also believe it is something that we have to practice. It's a rare human being who effortlessly embodies that love of Christ without having to try. It's something that we have to be reminded of, which is why we turn up every week to listen to someone standing up here like I am today preaching. It's the reason we come to church. It's the reason we sing hymns to God. And it's the reason we bow our heads in prayer. It's the reason we hang around afterwards to drink tea with each other. And it's the reason that we visit the sick and run food banks and raise money for charity. But I also think there are practices we have largely forgotten about in our way of doing church that do more to cultivate the field of love and eliminate the field of fear. We have much to learn from our monastic sisters and brothers about the power of contemplation and meditation and of course about simple living and acts of selfless service. I also believe that we can learn and should learn from other faiths such as Buddhism which has a wealth of wisdom to impart on the ways of the mind and of the heart. There's one practice that I would love to share with you which is called the loving-kindness meditation. I'd like to invite you, just for a moment or two, to practice a Christian version of this meditation with me. If it feels good, you might wish to place a hand over your heart and to close your eyes and to hear these words, which you might also wish to repeat inwardly as I speak them. May I know God's love. May I know God's rest. May I know God's peace. May I know God's love. May I know God's rest. May I know God's peace. May I know God's love. May I know God's rest. May I know God's peace. This and the other things I have mentioned are powerful practices that feed and nourish the treasure houses of our hearts to be more loving, less fearful, more ready to embody and to inhabit the kingdom of God. We cultivate this love because we know how life would feel without it. It is real and it's a gift. I'm reminded of the words of Julian of Norwich who in that mystical encounter she had with Christ was shown that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. 
soul. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You've been listening to Fucked Up by Faith with me, Jude Mills. Our music is by David Goodall and you can find the podcast on Spotify and all major podcast channels. If you would like to take part in the podcast or you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please do get in touch. You can do that via my website, judemills.com forward slash podcast and I look forward to hearing from you. Go well.